when we're singing a song like this, we're not just inviting God as though he's reluctant, as though maybe he's deciding in this moment whether or not he's going to appear. We are the ones that are responsible for changing the atmosphere. We are the ones that prepare a way for him. And if we prepare a way for him, he comes in. So what is it that's in the way? What's in the way is our passivity. What's in the way of, is our distraction. What's in the way is the shame that might be in the room that intimidates some by saying, you don't belong here. God doesn't want to even see your face. And so you have to break through. You have to break through the walls of, uh, of immobility that cause you to be stunted in your approach. If you draw near to him, he will draw near to you. This is the way that this works. This is a church that draws near to him. And so we're not hoping he comes. We are advancing boldly into his presence to approach the throne of grace because he made a way already. So let's not hold back. Let's not wait for an engraved invitation. Let's not wait till it's easy. Let's take a step and draw near. Father, we say, your kingdom come. Your kingdom come. Your kingdom come. We will not tolerate the intimidation of that spirit of antichrist we will not tolerate the intimidation no 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 we are sons and we are daughters of the most high we belong we belong in his presence. You know, sometimes we're not, we're not doing this for ourselves. Sometimes God is using us for others across the world. There could be churches and people right today on the verge of collapse, on the verge of being overwhelmed by the enemy. You've all seen war movies where there's a, an advanced team but they're suddenly being overcome. They're surrounded on every side. And what do they do? They call in for an airstrike. An airstrike. That means another component of the army, the Air Force, comes in and lays something on the enemy. Now, they see what they're doing. But in our world, we don't get to see. But there's a principle that we seek first the kingdom of God. That means we pay it forward. We do what the Holy Spirit is wanting us to do. We contend for the deliverance of others, people whose names we may never hear, people whose faces we may never see, whose situations we may never understand. But God, by His Spirit, is calling on a people who believe to transcend space and time and help our brothers and sisters who are, who are in dire need right now. So let's pull away from what I need right now because God knows what I need. And if I, if I lend myself to what He needs right now, He'll make sure my need is taken care of. 
Just before we transition, we're going to do one more song. But before we do, I want you to know that the greatest felt need of heaven, the thing that God is longing for more than anything else, is worship. And right behind that, it's prayer. He said, I'm looking for those who worship. Why? Because worship is the thing that precedes the manifestation of God on the earth. And when, when Jesus was rebuking the religious system of his day, he said basically this. He said, everything you're doing has supplanted the main purpose. My house will be a house of prayer for all nations. That I'm, I'm con- this gathering of believers is to contend for the freedom of those who don't yet believe. I want to leverage your faith and your worship to expedite my manifestation so that those beyond the walls and beyond the reach of my life presently can experience it. This is primarily why we meet. It's not secondary. It's not for preaching and teaching. All those things are to help this moment become more effective. Preaching, teaching, training, exhortation, pastoral ministry is to make this more effective. So let's do this last song with confidence, with authority, and knowing lives hang in the balance. Lord, we intercede this morning for our nation. And we say as we approach Dominion Day, Father, we say, let your destiny unfold in this land. As we, some of us, go to Winnipeg to contend for the destiny of this land, we say, God, raise up from every quadrant of this nation, every province, every corner, voices of hope, voices of faith, voices that add their bandwidth to the declarations and prayer and intercession that say, he shall have dominion. Say it with me. He shall have dominion. Again. He shall have dominion. One more time. He shall have dominion. Let me just say there's a change coming to the church. There's a change coming to our understanding of what constitutes church. What this is really about. I just have this picture there was this famous World War II scene uh, where the uh, soldiers put up the, the American flag on Iwo Jima, I think it was. And it's, you know, five or six soldiers leaning in to put that flag up. And what they did is to stir up support for the war because you're always having to do that with military conflicts to, to get the people focused. Say, hey, this is important. Our freedom is lying in the balance. You may not see it. It might not affect you in Arkansas right now. But the reality is we're fighting for so that tyranny doesn't come from there to here. And it's hard to get people focused that way because everybody's concerned about, no, I'm good. Nobody, no, you know, no invasors on my land here in Arkansas. You know, the Mississippi River does, you know, isn't filled with uh, communists as far as I can see. So we lose interest in things that aren't immediately in front of us. 
But what they did to do, you know, to get the support is they, they had this traveling show where they repeated with fanfare, music, and, you know, theatrical reproduction of that moment, right? Fireworks, you know, grand, pompous sounds to stir up. And there's a lot of people who think that's what church is. The church is a theatrical recreation to commemorate a moment that happened 2,000 years ago. It isn't. It isn't. It's bringing the power of the advance of what was secured 2,000 years ago into a present moment. Causing the reality of death that's swallowed up by life into the present. Not just remembering what happened 2,000 years ago, but bringing the power of that victory to bear on the circumstances of the moment. That's what church is about. Anything less is a cheap facade we're not worthy of our time or energy. And if there's disillusionment about church, it's because they've lost the sense of purpose of what this is about. And when it becomes a cheap, hyped reproduction, no wonder people lose interest. But behind the real thing, invisibly, lives are being changed. Reinforcements are coming on believing communities because of your faith, because of your declaration, because of your worship, and because of your prayer today. This is what church is about. Can you say amen? Woo! Yes! Come on, say it. I want to be part of your church, God. I want to do church. I want to see the gates of heaven open. I want to see the darkness rolled back. I want to see the gates of hell not prevailing against the manifestation of God. Pastor Mark. Thanks so much. It's so great to be together. And... uh, You know, I really mean it when I say that the most important thing is what happens in prayer and worship. Everything else is to increase our faith, right, so that we can do the things that he's calling us to do in terms of bringing the presence of God down to the earth. You know, there's a couple of moments, and pay attention to this. When you're reading the Bible, and you see Jesus get excited about something, it's probably because there's something important that happened. (laughs) Right? I mean, when Jesus gets, you know, overly affirming, because he wasn't overly affirming, sorry to say. (laughs) He he wasn't overly affirming. He was, he, he was, uh, he he rebuked, he attacked unrighteousness, he stood against evil, even when it was in his own people. Even when he was his own disciples, he says to them, you don't even know what spirit you're of. Well, as if I'm going to keep following you. Well, you're always fault finding. <laughs> now I'm bringing you into alignment. So there's these moments when Jesus gets really excited. And one of them, of course, is the moment where 
Peter says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, and he says, uh, he says, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And this is so important, Peter, that know this, that the, this is the building stone. This is the way in which the kingdom is going to increase in the earth. This, very, this thing that just happened, this is a core activity for establishing and increasing what I'm doing. So that's kind of important to, to figure out what actually happened in that moment because if we find out what happened in that moment and we can see that replicated in our lives, it is the cornerstone of the fundamental thing that we're called to. We can do a lot of things, but again, this is the main thing right here. So another time is when he got excited about the faith of the centurion. You remember the faith of the centurion? And he said, wow, I haven't seen such faith in all of Israel. That's quite a commendation. I, I, you know, I'm, I'm looking for this faith. I'm trying to get these guys with me to believe. But like, hey, guys, look at this. This is what I want you to do. Right? Wouldn't that be a great thing to be in a situation where Jesus is saying, not don't do this. <laughs> but he's saying, do this. Well, what was it that happened? The centurion came to get healing for his servant. And when he saw Jesus, Jesus said, oh, you know, he, Jesus could feel the faith, right? He says, oh, I'll, I'll come and heal your, your servant. He said, no, no, not necessary. <laughs> not necessary. Just speak the word and it'll be done. Jesus like, whoa, <laughs> this guy gets it. The, the kingdom of God transcends space and time. And this guy, you said, Trey, what's your name? Where are you from? You, he got it, and nobody else has even gotten close to this. I haven't seen this kind of revelation, this kind of functional faith anywhere. This is a big deal. Well, why, well how does that relate to us today? We're here in Spruce Grove, Alberta, Canada, Right, we're in a we're in a small church here on the backside of the world, as far as the world affairs are concerned. But God is using us to hit things in the spirit, hundreds and thousands of miles away. But the but the foundation, what makes that possible for Him to use us that that way, is the faith of the centurion. Do we have the ability to believe that we can affect? you know, incidences and events that are far away from us, both geographically and then on top of that, time-wise. Can we do things now that affect tomorrow? And so, so everything that we do as a church, all the helps ministry, the evangelism, the counseling, the, the, the teaching, the exhortation. When you gather, for, well, like we're going to gather after, after this morning, when you have people in your home, all of that has as its goal the ability to do this. 
All right? Because everything that we're working with you in, if you, if you have wounding, if you feel rejected, if you feel self-conscious, if you feel depressed, if you feel excluded, if you feel unworthy, if you feel shame, if you, know, if you have any of those things, you can't do this stuff. So everything else enables you to do this, the most important thing. It doesn't mean the other things aren't important. Is it important to have somebody in your house who's discouraged for lunch and, and encourage them? Yes. It, do you feel good because you're, you're t- it's tangible, it's right there, you're in the middle of it? Yes. Is it the most important thing? No. But it ties into the most important thing. It is unto. So we need to have that sense of the sequence of the priorities of the king. And so, again, that's why I gave that war analogy, and you see this all the time, the, the conflicted value systems when, when there are really lives and nations at stake and there's a military, military commander going in, and his, his, his whole objective is if we don't win this, millions of lives will be lost, but then there's somebody in the midst say, yeah, but if we do this, I might lose a couple of my soldiers. Right? Well, is it important that you don't lose soldiers? Absolutely. Is it the most important thing? Not at all. Right? And so the enemy tries to use the priorities of even our own orientation in ministry to subjugate the greatest purposes to our desires. And creates confusion and division within the body. And so there's nothing wrong with what you're called to do, and you should do it. You should do it with all your heart, and all effectively as much as you can. But realize it is unto something that is defined by this. The earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. And so we're on our way toward that. And uh, as, uh, as the leader of this enterprise, I want to say to you, I value every part that everybody plays. And uh, just because it's not centerpiece of everything we do doesn't mean it's not valued or not important. But the main things have to remain the main things. Amen? Amen. And so, yeah, that's not what I'm going to talk about. <laughs> but I, I just... You know, when you go into worship, man, it's just like the priorities of heaven. And this is what happens as we ascend. The priorities of the king start to become preeminent. That's why we're called to draw near to him. You know, I just, I'll take this a few more seconds. It's like, you know, you go to, into any enterprise, right? You go into a large company, whether it's Amazon or, or CIL or uh, Ledcor, any company you go, you'll find people in the fabric of the, that company. Because when there's tens of thousands of employees, you find that there's a variety of agendas within the administration of this thing. Yeah. And anybody who's run a business going like, yeah. That's, that's in fact, it's one of the main problems. It was one of the main problems with especially middle-tier management systems because insecure people who don't have the ability to ascend to the toppest ranks of, of that enterprise want to make a little fiefdom in their world to make up for their sagging self-worth at home. And so you've got all of these you know, all this subterfuge in terms of alternate agendas 
competing for the time and the energy and the resources of the company. And by doing that, they siphon off the power of the company to be most effective in what it's really called to do. And you have that all the time in the kingdom of God. And it is a manifestation of the work of the enemy. But here's the thing. What makes that possible in the church is our egos, our insecurity, our need to feel important, our need to heighten my particular part to make it seem more glorious than it is presently being perceived. And that's, when you read Corinthians, that's essentially what was happening in the Corinthian church. Everybody was pitted against another. Everybody's trying to build a little fiefdom. You know what's most important? What's most important is the intercessory team. No, it's the dancers. No, it's the, it's the feeding the poor. No, it's, it's building the building. We can't meet if there's no building. You know, I mean, everybody has an orientation that, that, that's important. But there is an order of importance. Amen. And so what happens is as we draw near to the Lord, we start to see the sequential nature of the different parts that are being played and how they fit together and realize that once we begin to see how this is meant to fit together, then the parts start to help to create growth and edification of the whole enterprise in love. And every part does what it's supposed to do to aid the larger agenda. Sound like a good plan? Yeah, I like that. Anyway, we'll talk about now what we really were going to talk about. Ah, I want you to turn to your, in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 3. Uh, okay, I want to, I want to highlight two, two things, three things really, but I'm going to highlight the beginning and the end of this thing called the, end, the kingdom of God. You know, what is, the, what is the primary objective that God is doing? What is he accomplishing by dying on the cross, by bringing the life, the manifestation of his presence? Well, if you really want to understand it, I have to go right back to the beginning. I'd like to read all of Genesis 3, but I'm not going to do that. I'm going to focus on one particular part. Are you guys with me? All right, here's where we're looking. In verse 14, uh, no, sorry. No, in verse 17. 14 is really good, but 17. God is talking to Adam. He's already talked to Eve. He's already talked to, uh, uh, actually hasn't talked to, to Eve yet. He's, he's talked to the serpent. Now he's talking to, to Adam. And he says in verse 17, then to Adam he said, because you have heeded your voice, the voice of your wife, and have eaten from the tree of which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat. Cursed is the ground for your sake. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the herb of the field in the sweat of your face. You shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken For dust you are, and to dust you shall return. Now, that is is God's poetic way of saying basically this. 
Something has entered into creation that because you opened this door, you've opened a door to death by eating of the tree, which I told you not to eat of. And you invited, you've invited in a principle of death, a law of sin and death has now been initiated into and been brought upon all creation. He's saying sin and death has come upon everything. It has affected from this point forward, every atom, every molecule, every plant, every person, every thought, uh, the light rays, I mean the moon, the stars, everything has now been affected by an atmospheric darkness that has invaded creation. And these are some of the minuscule consequences. This is the effect of that. The effect is this is going to happen and this is going to happen and this is going to happen. First of all, you're all going to (laughs) die. You're all going to die. Right, so we we see this, and and but he's itemizing some of the things he says to women, particularly. Okay, this is going to happen. He says to the serpent, "This is going to happen to you." And he says to the mankind, "He says this is what's happened, and and it's affecting everything." But listen to this for a second. Cursed is the ground for your sake. So that means the very soil, the very soil in which we live, is cursed. It's something is now happening that didn't happen before. He says this, in toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. And basically what that means is, is it wasn't that you were without responsibility before this because he gave them the garden, right? He said, tend and keep the garden of Eden. So it's not like there wasn't anything to do. The, the, the Toil is not the absence. I mean, toil is not just the presence of work. Toil is a force involved in the work that, appro- that opposes your efforts, that's what toil is, something that opposes your advancement. You want to plant a garden, good luck. You can do it, but it's, it's 100 times harder than it was under the previous administration. Because there's something now active in the atmosphere that inhibits the productivity that used to come seamlessly. This is why Jesus said, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. What is he saying? If you get saved, you don't have to do anything. No. He's saying if you get saved, you can start to tie in to a power source that makes doing this easy. So along the journey, we find out that, man, this is hard. So the answer is you're doing it wrong. Nobody likes that. It's like, no, that's right. You're doing it wrong. When it's hard, you're doing it wrong. So, well, I should just give up. Then no. No, you have to find the right way to do it. You know, it's like building the light bulb. You know, if you fail once, you try a thousand times. Right? You just keep doing it. And this journey is you're starting to to align the forces that are that are made available to make this happen with the ease that it should happen. That's how you know you're really participating in the complete flow of the kingdom of heaven. Now here's the central problem, is that when death came on creation, death came on us. Death came into our beings, and of course it caused 
it caused physical, actual death. You know, we, we have a limited time to exist now. But it did more than that. It put something inside of us. Something came inside of us that Paul says is hostile to God. Something inside of you is hostile to God. And so just because God likes you doesn't mean he likes everything inside of you. (laughs) Which is why he liked the disciples, but when he saw, you know, Man, you know, what's that Gollum thing, you know? When, what's his name? Gollum. Smeagol, Smeagol. So you have these two, two people really inside one person, and occasionally it's, and other times it's meek and brokenness. You think, wow, how can these two work together? Well, welcome to humankind, <laughs> right? Well, we like Smeagol better, but, but actually neither. Anyway, I won't go into that. But the point is this. When the disciples were exhibiting attitudes or thoughts or operate or catalyzed by energy that was not consistent with the aims and values of heaven, he, he said, hey, stop it. This is not consistent with what I'm doing. And so the very fact that you become a Christian doesn't mean, hey, from here on in, it's just going to be easy and good. Is it? Sometimes you just got to wake up in the morning. Somebody, you got to come to church, put on a shirt, Put on your pants, maybe have some breakfast. You got to make it. Sometimes it's not easy and everything in you is reluctant to do it. Doesn't want to do it. But there's a force that can turn that around. But here, you know, here, let me go on. He says, cursed is the ground. Verse 18, both thorns and thistles will it bring forth for you. And you shall eat the herb of the field in the sweat of your, your uh, sweat of your face. You shall eat bread. Now, this, this week here, I was uh, weeding my backyard. Wendy did some. I'm responsible for a smaller area. <laughs> the area I'm responsible for is where our stones are. And just like a week and a half ago or two weeks ago, I thoroughly purged that place. I pulled out every single weed I mean, it was clean. It was looking good. Then we have a few days of monsoon rains, and I go down there yesterday, and uh, it's like I it's like I never even did it, right? It's like I'm starting from scratch again, and I'm of course I'm thinking, man, where did the where did the seeds come from that started this? Right, you know, I I pulled out the roots. You know, did I leave a tiny little strand of a root, and all of a sudden that thing is is starting to come up again, and or or is this brand new seeds that were blown in with the wind? You know, what can I do to keep this from reoccurring? I want to I want to create a system whereby unwanted things don't grow in my garden anymore, don't grow between the crags of the rocks of my life. Right? This is, the, this is the goal. And so here's what we learn. We learn along the way that you can go around and you can pick out those individual weeds. Can't you? Yeah, that's what you got to do. But what if there was a better system? What if, what if there was a way to do things that would discourage the growth of weeds and encourage the growth of grass? 
right? Well, there is. We, you know, we, we what do they call those? Uh, I'm thinking insecticides, but I'm thinking herbicides. Yeah, I knew it was a side. I'll have a side of herbicides. Herbicides, right? That, 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 what you do, you apply that to your lawn, and it, it, it provides a kind of barrier, not to everything, but to some things. Right? It discourages the growth of weeds while allowing other things to continue to flourish. I want you to keep that picture in mind. But then I want to jump over to Romans chapter 8. Now, I might have to get reminded of that picture because I've got so many thoughts rolling around in my mind, and if, and if it looks like I have notes, it's a deception. There are no notes here, just verses. So, man, I was starting reading this this morning, and I thought, man, I really should start with verse 1. But then I'd have to read all the way through to verse 26. That's a lot of verses for a Sunday morning. I'd lose you guys at about verse 5. So uh, uh, I'm not going to do that. But I must point out something very, very important at the outset of Romans chapter 8. If you've never read Romans chapter 8 or haven't read it lately, I would encourage you to read it. Because these are some of the verses that give us vision and frame up what the future of this thing is going to look like. This is where we are going. But he starts out by talking about the problem. If you actually go back to Romans 6 and Romans 7, he talks about the the problem in depth. And the problem he talks about in 6 and 7 is that the problem just isn't out there. The problem is in here. The problem I've discovered, Paul says, is there's something inside of me that doesn't want what I want, doesn't want what God wants. And I find myself not wanting what God wants. And this is problematic as an apostolic leader. <laughs> Amen. It is problematic. But this is what it says. I'll start reading in verse 2. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, in a, it was weak through the flesh. God did sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. On account of sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. So let me stop there. There's, there's so many tributaries that go into this. So he says, listen, there's two things that work in creation right now. There was, after the fall, there was a law of sin and death. When Adam and Eve took of that tree, they introduced something. An atmospheric wave of darkness called the law of sin and death became active. It subjected everything in creation to, to its, its will. But then... Jesus came and died on the cross and he released the power of another law which represents another kingdom and another system. It is the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. So what's active right now is two laws. There's still the law of sin and death and there's a law of spirit and life. Resurrection. And what we're learning to do is to make the most gain the the greatest momentum and power out of the law of spirit of life. How do we get this to work on our behalf? How do we make this, how does this cause us to suppress ungodly desires and behaviors? Well, basically what he's saying in verse 8, it says the law came, and the law was simply a definition 
of which is which. That's the easiest way to say this. The law was a descriptor of the things that God hated and the things that God loved. So it, when, it, when the law says do not murder, it's because God doesn't like murder. So it's saying murder is bad. So the law is telling us what's good and what's evil, what God desires and what he doesn't desire. But it doesn't have the power to accomplish that in the same way that the sign on the grass that says don't walk on the grass doesn't have power to keep people from walking on the grass, right? It, it might dissuade some people, but it has no power. That sign is not going to get up and arrest you, right. <laughs> right? It just says this is what we would prefer, that people don't walk on the grass. But people do anyway. In fact, some people will do it just because there's a sign that says don't. <laughs> right? So the law, the law actually engages something in us to make us want to do it just because somebody said no. So we live that, right, in our marriages and lives and with our children. I didn't want to do that until you said don't do it. All of a sudden it's so... It's insatiating, just the thought of it. <laughs> so, so he introduces this problem. He's saying, listen, there's a dichotomy in us because there's two laws, two kingdoms, two realities. But he's saying, listen, here's what's coming. Something is coming. It's going to change everything. That the power of the kingdom of heaven, the law, the spirit of life, is starting to find its way in a people that are called the sons of God. The sons of God are emerging and creation is waiting for the fullness of sons of God. Now, why fullness? Because everybody who's been saved from the time of Jesus' death till now has participated in the law of the spirit of life. But how many of you know, not equally, right? Not, not equally. Some, and they stand out as monuments and leaders and, and examples of righteousness in their generations. Like, we think we love that. We write stories about them. We, we write songs. We, there are books written about them. We look back and say, oh, wouldn't it be great to be there like this guy, to learn from Charles Finney or whoever it may be. These guys, like, they obviously were, they tapped into something And this is what God is trying to tell us. That thing that they tapped into was not exclusive to them. It wasn't limited to one generation. It wasn't limited to 400 years ago. In fact, the pattern is this, that there will be more people in the last days that that exact the fullness of the power of the kingdom out of what Jesus did than have ever existed up to that point. That's the promise. So we're going towards a fullness. We're not just a few. And God does this. What he does is so that nobody faints throughout the generations. He looks in a generation and he says, hmm, I need somebody to be an example of hope to give others the capacity to aspire to greater. And so I'm going to pour my grace out. Where's some singular person who has a really open heart towards me? I'm looking, I'm looking. I find one, Charles Finney. He's a guy. He's a lawyer. I'm going to go visit him. I'm going to invade him with the power. I'm going to change him. He's going to grasp things. He's got, he's got the groundwork of what I need to do this for his generation. So he does that. And this guy exemplifies amazing revival and, and, and uh, wonderful things. But God did that. 
for his generation, not because that's the highest, because the highest is not one man singular in one generation or one window of time, but it is an example so that everybody else can follow in their footsteps. God does that to say, this is for you. And what's happening is that we get, as we get closer to the end of the age, more and more people are going to get it. You are more anointed and walking in more anointing and more knowledge and more revelation than any other generation before this day. Nobody has had as much revelation as a generation as this revelation. Now, you yourself may not match William Booth or Charles Finney or Smith Wigglesworth, but as a generation, the aggregate of faith and knowledge in this room dwarfs any other generation. Did you know that? Why? Because we're on a trajectory of fullness towards this point that I'm going to refer to in a second, this point where even creation that was subjected to this law of death is going to say, all right, this is it. Our time has come. Now, I'm coming to what I'm, how are we doing for time? We're doing great. So, verse 18, I'll start reading there. The whole rest of the chapter is great, but verse 18, for I consider, this is Paul writing again, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. For the earnest expectation of creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. Why? For the creation was subjected to futility. They were subjected to the law of death, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. What does that mean? God allowed this to happen on creation with an expectation that, A, he has the means to deliver all of creation. And he has the desire and the plan to do so. And that plan is earmarked by a moment in time when creation sees the fullness of the manifestation of the sons of God. That means a whole generation of people who come up into a Charles Finney kind of epiphany and realize that kingdom is now and it's in them and it's unstoppable. That's what we're moving towards. That's what, that's what church history is all about. Ah. So what else did he say? He said, for the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope because the creation itself will also be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. So we're on our way towards that. And also, so this is what we have. We have a moment where creation was subjected to this. We have a moment where the law of the spirit of life was kicked into gear. And all of a sudden, uh, transformation and liberation was made possible for the individual on a quantum level above anything else that was seen before. Right when, when Jesus released the law of the spirit of life, now you just didn't have people who were basically sinful and called to do what's good. 
and, you know, exercising discipline and, and futile efforts to keep that evil at bay in themselves and bring forth. The, I mean, God said, no, now is the release of the plan. In you will be the kingdom, and in you will be the life-giving force, the power to reverse death inside your body. But we are growing in our understanding of how to release that. So what he's saying is that there's coming a time when the uh, people cross over into this fullness, and what's going to happen then is the very creation itself will be delivered. I want you to think about that for a moment. As I was in my backyard pulling these nasty weeds, wishing they were gone, trying to swat mosquitoes who are clearly a part of the curse. At least their orientation around sucking my blood was born of the, uh, born of the, the curse, right? Maybe there's going to be a use for mosquitoes in eternity. I don't know. They're just not going to have the same food source. <laughs> but here, here's what happened. God has given us an ability to create an atmosphere that suppresses the growth of some things while advancing the growth of other things. When you build a greenhouse, that greenhouse is, is designed to do that on the level of weather. It's, it's, it's an incubation zone that causes you to create an ideal climactic environment so that those peas and those tomatoes that are, the, that are just fledgling little shoots coming out of the ground or just barely seeds, it incubates them so that they can come to a fullness. In other words, it, it creates a, an alternate atmosphere that encourages the growth of the things that you want to grow. <sighs> Weather does that. All around the world, we see this. You, you go up to, well, you come where we are, and not a lot of palm trees, not a lot of, uh, you know, tumbleweeds. <laughs> if you go down southern Alberta, you'll find some, but you keep going further south, and you can find more and more. You know, there's not a lot of palm trees here, and there's certain, you know, cedar trees, you gotta, you got to really nurture them to, to make them last here. But you go to B.C., right, because of the climate, the climate, the atmosphere encourages certain species of vegetation to flourish, which would not survive in the Arizona desert. You know, even though it's bad conditions, there's some things that thrive in the Arizona desert. Cactus, not a lot of cactus in Tuk Tuk Tuk. So what God is saying is, listen, what I'm making available to you collectively as a church is an incubation system. What the church is meant to be is a spiritual greenhouse that when you worship and when you pray, you release an atmosphere of life. That atmosphere is like a temperature control system in a greenhouse. It causes the hostile temperatures of either heat or extreme cold to invade the space where you are to give these, these plants an opportunity to begin to flourish. But one day, one day, 
the whole creation will be filled with this atmosphere. One, one day, the people of God are going to have so much faith that they're going to become fountains of living water, creating an atmosphere of life that fills the entire creation. But unlike our little example of a, of a greenhouse, not only do they create the ideal environment to keep uh, extreme temperatures at bay, they actually discourage the growth of things. Actually discourage certain, certain seeds cannot germinate. Have you ever wondered about this? Like when the, when the, when the curse came, when the curse came, did God suddenly in that moment invent thorns and thistles? Or do you think maybe the seeds of them were always there, latent, but the nature of the soil was it repelled them? Here's the, here's the point. This is where we're coming to. In a lot of our lives today, we're spending a lot of time picking out weeds. <laughs> you know, and we need to, and you should do that. You should be rooting those things out. And I mean, we, we did deliverance and inner healing ministry. We used to talk about going to the root of the thing, right? You know, you got these bad behaviors in your life. Well, if we go to the root in your memories and the rest of that, we find the root of this thing. We wanna, we wanna get rid of the root. Fundamentally sound principle. No problem with that. But what if the soil of my heart was, was disposed to not even allow the seed to ever germinate? Is there a level of the manifestation of the kingdom of heaven inside of me that causes offense to never seed or take root? Is it possible for me to be wounded or to be abused or to be rejected or to be tempted and not even respond? See, if you go to James chapter 1, it says God cannot even be tempted with evil, neither does he tempt anyone. I want you to know that that's your destiny. That's the plan of God. You want to, think, want to know what the plan of God is? Those things that easily germinate and grow in your life and create, you know, God... God can, uh, he has a plan to annihilate them. He has an energy, you know, not a herbicide exactly, but something that acts like a herbicide that makes it impossible for this seed to germinate. So what he's building in us right now is a sense of, yeah, I, he's wondering, listen, are you even disposed to be against the wrong, the wrong, the wrong plants? Do you hate the weeds when they're growing in your life? Or do you, you know, it's nice to feel self-pity. I, I want to nurture this self-pity for a while. He said, listen, I want to get you to the place where you don't nurture it anymore. In fact, that, that you don't like it and you don't want it. Once, once that starts, I'm cultivating an atmosphere that will literally repel the seeds of self-pity so they can never even ever begin to explode in the soil of your heart. Now that's... Redemptive power. The law of the spirit of life is transforming us so that we're not having to come to fields full of dandelions metaphorically in our heart. We're not dealing with repeated times of repentance every week. Oh, I'm sorry for this, Lord, this. We're not having to pick out. If you have to do that, you need to do it. 
but with the hope that there's a time coming where you won't even have to do that. And part of the value of the church is not a place where you find out, okay, what do I have to do this week? (laughs) It's a greenhouse where you can be saturated by a presence as you worship with others and as you work through your the things that even keep you from worshiping, which are those weeds. As you work through that and you participate in this environment, all of a sudden a clarity starts to come out of what what you should be disposed to be avoiding, what you should reject, and what you should keep. And that causes you to start, oh, I'm picking out these, uh, there's that thorn and it's back again. Father, forgive me. I just repent. I turn away from that thing. I don't want that bitterness. I don't want that jealousy. I don't want that unforgiveness. But all of that is moving to a place as you prove faithful and picking out the weeds and God says, all right, what you're doing by rejecting that is you're inviting a higher intensity of the atmosphere of life so that when you come in here, you don't just get a little of that, but you get the fullness of what's available. And what it does, it creates conditions that not only slow the growth of the weeds, but can become an iron shield against them. That's, that's what is, in the, in the end of this, the, the creation is going to go, look at that, who is that? Oh, that's Travis, that's, that's Ken, that's, that's Jim, that's Gloria, that's, that's Kathy, that's, no, it isn't, that's a son of God. And creation will know that its time of deliverance is near, and it will get to participate in the freedom that is being exemplified in the generation of those who seek his face. That is the beginning and the end of this journey and everything in between. And everything else that we're doing and struggling with somehow finds its place in this order, in this agenda. And so, but if we can keep, I believe, our focus on these are the main things that are being accomplished, we win. And you might have to this week sit down with somebody who's trying to decide whether that thistle should be kept or not. <laughs> you, you might be having to sit with somebody who's, who's you know, who's got a big open in the ground and a couple of seeds of resentment have gone in there say you know you don't want to nurture these resentment seeds you want to get rid of them this is going to just hurt you in the long run no you don't want to do that that leads to divorce no you don't want to do that that leads to adultery no you don't want to do that that leads to addiction and that's a part of this process but it's unto a manifestation of the glory of God that evil cannot penetrate, cannot overcome, is completely inept to deal with. Resurrection. Resurrection life inside of you will consume even death itself. So Father, let's stand up together. Father, we say today, Lord, let the blueprint of redemption, Father, be sealed inside of our hearts today. Father, uh, may the hope of what you put in creation be our hope today. And even in the sense that we are meant to participate in the fullness of these things before creation even gets a proper glimpse. God, may we be those men and women who come into the fullness that you've ordained for a generation. 
God, displace what you need to displace. Lord, in Jesus' name, may we understand the value and the benefit of being in a body of people so that even when we're not disposed to repent and to turn from our sin, they create an atmosphere that incubates us and shows us what is real. In Jesus' name. Amen. Hallelujah, hallelujah. Let's just wait on the Lord for a second. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. It might be hard right now. It might be hard, and those seeds get away on you, and all of a sudden, the tapestry of your life is punctuated with things you don't want them. And the enemy would say to you in this time, through shame and guilt and hopelessness, just give up. Just, just give up. You can't do this. I say that's a lie. I say that's a lie that the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus is greater than the law of sin and death. And the pivot point of whether you continue in this journey is deciding which will prevail at the end of your days. Which will prevail in the end. So I say in Jesus' name, let hope fill your hearts, let let confidence, let, let a belief that, no, I can do this, that the fires of lust, the fires of, of pain, the fires of resentment, the fires of unforgiveness will be extinguished, will not prevail. In Jesus' name. 